There has been a coup. Michael Walker is away this evening and I've taken over. My name's Barnaby Rain. Welcome to Tisky Sour. To ensure that standards are maintained, I'm going to be joined throughout the show by Ash Sarkar. Ash, welcome. Well, look, if you listen carefully, I think you can hear Michael whimpering hogtied somewhere in the other room. So don't turn my mic up too much. No noise. He's been poisoned. We begin tonight in France, where Michael has been sent in exile. Results are in from the first round of the French presidential election. Doing slightly better than predicted, Emmanuel Macron won 27.6% of the votes in the first round ballot, and he seemed pretty pleased. I wish to call on everyone who for the last six years up until now has committed to work alongside me to overcome their differences, to come together in a big political movement of unity and action for our country. Meanwhile, Marine Le Pen of the right-wing National Rally, formerly the National Front, came second with 23.4% of the vote. Le Pen has spent the last few years cleaning up her image and distancing herself, at least in public, from her past as a professional racist. Her father once called the Holocaust a detail of history, the founder of uh, her party, the National Front. But her platform focused on two issues. First, of course, was immigration. I will bring back France's sovereignty in all areas, which means the freedom for the French people to decide for themselves and defend their interests. I will control immigration and re-establish security for all. But secondly, and tellingly, Le Pen concentrated on the cost of living. With the prices of gas, electricity and fuel, nobody dares to be ironic anymore. As president, I will decrease the VAT on all energy products from 20 to 5.5%. Protests against the result for the far-right candidate took place in parts of France. A large fire in Rennes began in a square, and protesters also created a mass blockade in opposition to the results. While in Lyon, fireworks were set off and fires lit by protesters. Well, if you're on the left, there are good reasons to express anger at what's happening here. Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who broke with the French socialists in 2008 in protest against their rightward drift into neoliberal policies, a story familiar to students of social democracy across Europe. La France Insoumise, his party, got 22% of the vote this time. The French socialists, who held the presidency until 2017 and got 50% of the vote not long ago, are now reduced to 2%, even though their candidate, Anne Hidalgo, was the high-profile mayor Paris. So consider this. Because the French socialists and French Greens wouldn't stand aside, the second round of voting, which decides the next president, will leave voters the choice between right-wing neoliberal and a far-right xenophobe. These are the same moderates who always implore us to support lesser evils when it's a dreadful right-winger, but then can never bring themselves to support an actual socialist. Now, unlike the other candidates, Mélenchon managed to invigorate young voters. Today we put on a massive show of support. People from across different generations came. There were those with prams, the elderly, young university students like us. We're all very proud, singing the same songs. Everyone was happy to be here. We're seeing people who say we stopped voting, but for this election that's no longer an option. The world we live in has become so impossible that we have to vote. Yes, I'm going to vote, and I'm voting for Jean-Luc Mélenchon. Analysts now concentrate on Mélenchon's vote share, arguing that the secret to success in this second round will be appealing to those centre-left voters next time. 
Some suppose that Macron is more likely to do that than Le Pen, and that leftists will hold their noses, as they literally did in 2002, and vote for Macron to keep out the fascist Le Pen. But while Mélenchon has advised his supporters not to vote for Le Pen, he hasn't yet instructed them to vote for Macron. The Financial Times produced this graph based on a poll by Ifop Fiducial. It found that around a quarter of Mélenchon's supporters will vote for Le Pen in the second round, and roughly half of them will simply abstain. Earlier, we spoke to Marine Roussillon, a French academic and left-wing activist. We asked her why so many Mélenchon voters were simply not going to turn out for that second round. It's about anger and despair. They voted for Mélenchon because they are so angry about Macron's politics and in particular about what he did with hospitals and schools and about what he did with the Gilets jaunes, you know, with the big demonstrations that were repressed with a lot of violence. So they are very angry. And I mean, we are all very angry. And it's very difficult to vote for Macron in these circumstances. And especially because we think that Macron is partly responsible of uh, Le Pen's score. And so, you know, you vote for Macron and then you think, yes, but in five years later, she will be stronger and stronger because of my vote. But yeah, I think it's very dangerous because they maybe they don't realize how Le Pen could be different from Macron and how having someone racist in power is a really big difference. Well, for French black and brown voters, it may be hard to cast an anti-racist vote for the status quo. After all, right now, they have a president who praises colonialism while prosecuting directly neo-colonial wars like the one in Mali, with Muslim dress banned and police violence endemic. And there's another issue here. Opting for the lesser evil has diminishing returns over time. If the left tells angry people to vote for a haughty Thatcherite, Macron, and if we let the far right be the only oppositional force, talking about the cost of living as if only they were concerned about it, the left risks boosting the racists. Macron 2017 equals Le Pen 2022 was one slogan last time. This is a tragic bind since stopping the rise of fascism is the most urgent challenge now, but the center cannot do it. Let's go back to that first graph. It reveals something interesting. Once we include Eric Zemmour, who wanted to ban Muslim names, who defends Nazi collaborators and the racist great replacement theory, fully a third of French voters are now opting for the far right and its candidates. So we asked Marine what she thought the prospects of a Le Pen victory were. I'm very afraid that Le Pen would be able to win. I can't say I'm sure there's a chance. I hope there's no chance she would win, but I'm still very afraid because when you count different uh, scores, it's, yeah, it's possible. And what would it mean? My God, we don't know. And it's terrifying. Because if she wins, it would be easier for all the right-wing traditional electors and elected people and so on to make a kind of union with her or association with her. Lots of people says. She could win, but if Le Pen would win, then nothing would happen because uh, she wouldn't have any deputies, but in Parliament, I mean. But I'm not sure of that. I'm sure that a lot of right-wing deputies would be very happy to go with her if it's a chance for them to 
stay in the parliament. So I think she could win and she could have a government and a majority and and it would be terrifying because it would be, I mean, her program is really antisocial and of course she is racist. So it would be a very violent politics in France. Her international politics is also very terrifying. She's a big friend of Putin, as you know, and in this context of international tensions and war, you know, having someone that Putin's ally in, in government in France, it would be, I mean, it would be terrifying for us and for all Europe, I think. Not so much socialism or barbarism as barbarism all round. Well, Ash, what do you think? Unfortunately, it seems that some of the predictions of the French left in 2017 have come to pass, which is that if you vote in Macron, you won't have the kind of redistributive economic change which you need in order to neutralize the French far right. Now, that doesn't automatically mean that Le Pen will win in the second round of the presidential election. Macron's share of the vote in this first round has gone up from his performance a few years ago, but there is definitely a risk and that risk has not been neutralized, mitigated or eliminated in the way that you would expect after four-year Macron government. I think there's a couple of things which are worth pointing out. One is the age distribution of the vote in this first round. So where Macron's support is strongest is in voters who are aged 65 plus. Marine Le Pen, however, has a pretty even distribution across the working age age bracket. So that's really 18 to 65. Mélenchon, as we've just talked about, has got an awful lot of support amongst the young. Now, what that's telling you is that it is largely people who are no longer in the workforce because they've aged out of it, because they've retired, who are really interested in this kind of David Cameron with a French accent kind of politic offered by Emmanuel Macron. And when you look at the working age population, there is a strong consensus for breaking with the status quo, whether that is in an explicitly left-wing direction or, as you point out, in a much more nationalist, far-right or even fascist direction with Marine Le Pen. So I think there's something which is kind of important because that will have an impact on the turnout in the second round. Because Marine Le Pen's support tends to be concentrated amongst those lower turnout demographics in terms of age, and Macron's support is concentrated in a higher turnout demographic, this might be something which just pushes him over the line in, in the next round. I think the second thing to point out is that there has been a little bit of, you know, chopping and changing and parking of tanks on lawns in this past year. So one of the things that Macron's party has very deliberately done is try to position them as more hardline on Islam and immigration and French cultural identity than the Front National, to the point that there were times when in the presidential debate, Marine Le Pen was visibly shocked at some of the things that Macron was saying about the Islamic presence in France. And I think that if we're talking about this, this commandment to always vote for the lesser of two evils, if you're a leftist, it should be very easy to vote for a liberal in order to keep out a fascist, there has to be a question, which is, well, at what point are you allowed to break with the liberal if they have gotten to where they are because they are trying to outflank the fascist on some of these really critical questions of culture, nation, and ethnic makeup? So I think that this is a question which isn't going to go away. 
And it's something which I don't think that liberals either in France or indeed their allies here in the UK have a particularly good answer for. And what about the left? Because one notable difference here is that when Mélenchon has traditionally positioned himself as a national Republican candidate, the very name of his party is France Unbowed, this time he was attacked quite aggressively as a candidate of the bon dieu of working-class migrant uh, communities on the outskirts of French cities. We saw coming in early the results from French Guyana with a huge majority for Mélenchon, lots of estimates that he did well among uh, ethnic minority communities in France. So is there some hope there about the possibility of building a serious left bloc, getting more than 20% of the vote, speaking a, what might be called a populist language of lowering pension ages and raising the minimum wage, while tying that to a refusal to make concessions to the politics of the far right, which the left often has done in France? But is there some hope there? Well, I think you've got to look at some of the election maths, because ultimately, ultimately, Mélenchon has been frustrated twice because there have been competing candidates running on the left as well. If you got rid of them and you added those, vo those votes to his tally, it would have been him in the runoff. So you can have diverse coalition, which reflects the realities of the French working class. But unless you deal with this kind of basic problem of percentages, that's not really going to get you that far. But I think that's something you point out is very interesting, which is there is a identity component to class politics. And I'm not talking about, oh, class is an identity. I'm saying in order to put together a political coalition which represents working class interests, you have to think about, well, what is the identity of this coalition? What is the complexion? What's the vibe? What's the mood? What are the values? And the fact is in that in France and in Britain as well, you have a very diverse working class. You've got exploited pool of working class labor, which has a relationship, of course, to immigration, has a relationship to racism and discrimination in the workplace. And ultimately, if you want to be a socialist and be truly worthy of the name, you're going to have to integrate a form of racial analysis, an analysis of how immigration and borders work in order to create a hyper-exploitable pool of labor, if you want to actually stand for anything and be an effective representative of the interest of labor against capital. Now, there are very few who I think on the left are willing to do that. I think Corbyn obviously tried to do that a bit. And this is a you know big characteristic of Mélenchon's campaign, particularly if you look at his deputy, Danielle Abono. She is somebody who has talked about this time and time again, but it's not necessarily something which is you know filtered through to the left at large. So I think there's a lot there to emulate and indeed to build on. And I think it also raises important questions for the left here, which is how do you deal with the diversity of the working class and how do you present an almost cultural image of it, which can be a part of building a coalition across race, across geography and across immigration status. Thank you very much for that, Ash. We do well to remember the line from Stuart Hall, race is a modality through which class is lived. We have some comments. Um, some of you are watching over on something called twitch.tv slash Navara Media. So someone called Scar underscore DB says socialism has been so demonized for so long that people end up being stuck between more neoliberals and fascists. It sucks. It certainly does. Someone else on Twitch says it doesn't help when Macron's interior minister said Le Pen was too soft on Islam, which is very much the kind of point that Ash was just making. And then we have another contribution. Albor156 says if Le Pen wins, I worry for the future of Europe. I sympathize with leftists. That's nice. Vote for Macron and you get nothing you want and vote for Le Pen and you make things worse. Best thing to do is to vote for Macron, but I totally understand anyone not voting at all now. Don't understand why left voters would vote for Le Pen instead of spoiling their ballot. So thank you so much for all those comments. On we go.
We are living in a climate emergency. The latest IPCC report warned that without immediate and deep action to limit emissions, we won't be able to keep global temperature rises to 1.5 degrees and perhaps not even to 2 degrees. The threat of climate catastrophe is here and it's not going anywhere. This in the same year that scientists recorded temperatures in the Arctic 30 degrees above the seasonal norm and 40 degrees above it in Antarctica. So just listen to that again. 30 degrees and 40 degrees above the seasonal average, and yet not much seems to be changing besides the weather, which is why activists from Just Stop Oil have been blockading oil terminals in locations across England since the beginning of April. There have been more than 300 arrests so far, and Extinction Rebellion organized a number of actions too. They held a series of deliberately disruptive protests across London over the weekend. They closed off two bridges for several hours, and blocked Oxford Circus, causing traffic delays in central London. A member of Just Stop Oil appeared on Good Morning Britain, you know this isn't going to end well, to explain the group's actions. Well, what followed was like a scene from Don't Look Up, the drama where media commentators seek any excuse to avoid covering the reality of impending devastation. I don't think any of us want to be disrupting people's lives, but I think given the science and the things that academics are saying, about what oil is causing around the world and in this country too, this is the level of action that needs to be taken when our government is failing on their energy policies and their climate pledges. But you'd accept, wouldn't you, that it's a very complicated discussion to be had. It's a very complicated thing. And this Just Stop Oil slogan is very playgroundish, isn't it? It's very Vicky Pollard. It's quite childish. Just stop oil. I mean, come on, there's more to say than that, isn't there? I would say that the answers are actually very simple. We need to stop new oil licensing, and that's all we're asking. You know, with the oil reserves that we have now and the oil fields that we have that are still going, that would provide us with eight years of oil if we said no to new oil, and that's all we're asking for. But We've how seen... do the blockades advance that argument? They, do, they don't, do they? They simply cause nothing but disruption, and you, and you get a negative reaction. I've got to tell you, we, we were expecting to get some messages of support from our viewers for you. Mm -hmm. We haven't had one, not one. We've had nothing but, but furious complaints from people. Nothing, nothing, nothing positive at all. I wonder if any of you have read the latest IPCC reports that have come out this year, yeah. you know, what they have said is that we are on the road for climate catastrophe. We are on the road for three degrees of warming. This will happen to my generation, to your children's generation, potentially to your grandchildren. And I think we have a moral responsibility to act now. You know, we're supposed to be climate leaders. We're geopolitical leaders. We could set the way for the, for the whole planet by committing to stopping oil moving to energy efficiency, moving to renewables, moving to yes. insulation. And I think the children and the future deserve at least well, that. Well, I thought that campaigner was excellent. But what the clip shows, besides how inane Richard Madeley can be, is that he has little or no understanding of what Just Stop Oil are demanding, even though he was interviewing them, which isn't an immediate end to oil use, but for the UK to stop issuing new oil licenses for North Sea excavation. Their argument is that the UK has enough oil reserves to cover us for eight years, and that by the end of that period, we should have significantly reduced our reliance on oil. But Maidley wasn't alone. Rather than address the actual issue, journalist Lowry Turner took the opportunity to belittle the campaigners as well. The one group of people have decided that they are the ones to save the world. And there's a certain po-faced 
incredibly irritated. I'm getting it coming off in waves towards me here. Like, how dare you question us because we know what's right. I'm going to glue my hand to some tarmac and then I'm going to be a martyr and I'm going to be a good person while the rest of us can't get on with our date. I mean, you know, with respect, Miranda is 20. I'm more than twice her age. You know, I've got kids, I've got a job, I've got an elderly mother. We have to get on with our lives. Most people feel they're doing their bit. They, they are doing the recycling. They're trying. I can't afford an electric car. I can't afford a heat pump. Most people can't afford that. The people that the campaigners should be focusing on is the government, not on ordinary mm -hmm. people. But it's about ego. There's no doubt that we've had a winter without any uh, protest. But as soon as the sun comes out, oh, it's eco-festival time. And it is a festival. It's a big jamboree. It's let's get on social media. Let's sit down with a placard. Let's advertise to my friends what a great person I am. While the rest of ordinary people who have to go to work can't get to work. When the cities are underwater, some people will still be complaining that ordinary people just want to get to work. What was so striking about this segment is the way that everyone except the activist seemed desperate to avoid the issue of the climate crisis, and the way they couldn't seem to face up to the scale of what's going to be needed to avert it. The focus was entirely on the temporary disruption of these protests, instead of the permanent disruption ahead. Disruption came up again when Environment Secretary George Eustace appeared. Can't these protesters, once they've made their protests outside the oil refinery or wherever, why can't they be moved on? Why can't they be arrested for obstruction? Uh, uh, and the road opened up and the oil or the gas or whatever get out to where it's needed. Why, why are they allowed to, to, to blockade these places for hours at a time? Well, we've, we're in the process of making some uh, changes to the law, seen by some as controversial and by some as, uh, as, as affecting peaceful protest. The right to protest is obviously really important, always has been under our constitution but but it is important that you've got the powers to move people on when they are disrupting uh, the lives of others and conducting uh, protests like this that aren't just about making a point which everybody understands and is a right that they should have uh, but actually are calculated to damage uh, and undermine other people from going about their daily business well, so we're making some changes to them Richard Purcell has said in, in, in this morning's newspapers that, uh, that, that the Labour Party are guilty of obstructing uh, changes to the law, which were meant to, to give the police extra powers to deal with these protests. But surely, surely we've got those powers already. It's called the law of obstruction. Um, if I were to stand outside a supermarket to make a protest of some kind, and I was stopping people going in and out, I would expect someone to come along after 10 minutes and feel my collar. Why can't we use the existing laws, as I say, in particular, the law of obstruction? Well, it's, as you'll recall, Richard, there's been other problems that we did use some of those laws when we had people gluing themselves to motorways, which was a major uh, public uh, safety hazard. And I remember your programme covering that in detail last year. Mm. Uh, but what we were finding is even when they were being prosecuted, they were then returning uh, and, uh, and gluing themselves to motorways again. So the, the law does need strengthening in this area, in our view. And it is right that the Labour Party and the House of Lords have been uh, blocking uh, some of those amendments as they've been uh, going through uh, Parliament as they've been debated. Uh, but, you know, we do think we need to strengthen the law here so that the police can move people on when they're doing this particular aggressive type of uh, protest. Now, Eustace was asked whether Just Stop Oil are correct in their claim that the UK has enough oil in stock to last eight years, but he just didn't answer. Instead, he spoke largely about gas. Oil didn't come up, and there was no pushback from the interviewers. Imagine having the Environment Secretary on your show, it would be nice to have him here, and not pressing him on that key question. And of course, the focus on disruption only serves the Tories, 
turning the topic away from environmental collapse and towards their favorite subject, law and order. Here, Maidley just hands it to Eustace as an opportunity to boost support for the police, crime, sentencing and courts bill, which will give police greater powers to shut down protests and criminalize protesters. The disruption caused by the blockades seems to have been massively exaggerated anyway. Fair Fuel UK is a pro-petrol pressure group. The Times reports this. Fair Fuel UK, which campaigns for lower fuel prices, estimated from anecdotal reports from supporters that a third of petrol stations south of Birmingham had run dry for a time. It said that Cambridgeshire, Oxfordshire, and parts of Hampshire and Kent had been affected most severely. But shortly after that, the AA said this was completely untrue. The Times continue. The AA said claims of widespread shortages had been exaggerated and there had been only isolated problems. Edmund King, its president, said, there have been some localized shortages flagged up by AA patrols, but some of that is due to extra demand with the Easter driving season starting and more staycations. Our 2,700 patrols have not reported difficulties in obtaining fuel despite some isolated shortages. However, the AA did say there had been a few incidents of panic buying by drivers who had seen warnings of shortages on social media. So let's get this straight. It's not actually the fuel protesters who are causing disruption. It's the people who despise the protesters who are drumming up panic buying by making up stories about how much disruption those activists are causing. And Maidley had the cheek to call Just Stop Oil childish. Well, The Observer did quite a good piece on Just Stop Oil, asking activists what they think about disruption. One activist explained it like this. I like this. People have been writing petitions, going on marches, speaking to their MPs, joining NGOs, and it's not just staying the same, it's actually getting worse. People across society are really angry. We've tried all the democratic means of creating that change, so now the only thing we can do is civil disobedience. It is upsetting to disrupt people, but it's far more upsetting to stay silent as we watch this horror unfold. If my brother woke me up because there was a fire in the middle of the night, I wouldn't be angry that he woke me up. On the BBC's Sunday morning show, Sophie Raworth also brought up the issue of disruption, this time by Extinction Rebellion. She asked Green Party MP Caroline Lucas what she thought about it, and this is what Lucas said. I'm sorry that it's come to this, that this is the only way that people feel that they can make their voices heard, but I think when we're facing literally the Secretary General of the UN saying that we are absolutely at the last point, it's now or never when it comes to climate uh, catastrophe, then absolutely I support peaceful direct action to try to get a government and it's not to look at this. Some tactics certainly are. I personally, for example, if you're going to try and stop tube trains moving around, I think that's counterproductive. I think being on the streets in London has been shown to be a way of capturing people's imaginations. People have joined those protests who've never protested before, and they're doing it because they know that we have to leave new fossil fuels in the ground. The International Energy Agency says that, the latest IPCC report says that, and yet this government and this energy strategy that we're talking about just now is foreseeing getting out even more oil and gas from the North Sea. That is frankly immoral. As the UK, uh, as the UN General Secretary said, it is both uh, morally and economically mad. Remember this. A few months ago, journalists savaged Insulate Britain activists whose one call was to protect us and the planet from soaring heating bills by insulating homes instead. Now we face a cost of living crisis and those activists don't look so silly at all. Ash, what will it take for our media class to take this climate crisis seriously? 
to have a completely different media class and have a completely transformed media economy is the short answer. But I'm going to just talk a little bit about how the media works. Imagine that the public conversation, the arena in which we understand ourselves and the world we live in, imagine it's a swimming pool and we're all in it. Journalists, what they should be doing is making sure that that swimming pool that we're all in is as clear and clean as possible. That all the rubbish, all the crap, all the little floating plasters, it's not in there, right? It's clear, it's clean. It means that we're getting quality information that helps us factually understand the world around us. Unfortunately, the reality of an awful lot of media in this country is that journalists, and I mean people who write articles, people who commission articles, people who present morning telly shows like Richard Maidley, their job isn't to keep that swimming pool clean. It is to shit directly into it, to make it as disgusting and grotesque and degraded, foggy and unclear as possible, to stop us from understanding things correctly, but to be in such a state of fury and disgust and hyper-emotionality because fundamentally all of us are swimming around in shit every day. And that is exactly what Richard Maidley is doing. And I think you also have to put Larry Turner in that light as well, who's got a very long career of writing absolute nonsense. I remember there was a piece of hers, I think from 2007, saying, I have a mixed race child and they feel alien to me. And so when you look at this context where journalists and in particular morning TV presenters who are sort of marshalling the public conversation every day, they're just sort of defecating directly into our brains. And then you've got someone like, you know, Larry Turner, who is the beneficiary of a pundit system, which operates as a reward structure for bibbling idiots. No wonder you have a media industrial complex, which is fundamentally incapable of dealing with the most pressing issue facing humanity at this time. And the reason why this is happening it's because this structure has been designed in this way. And I think that if you want to isolate one person in particular who is the most responsible for this degradation of the public sphere, it is Rupert Murdoch. He is somebody who has marshaled his media empire in order to think about how you diminish, deny, and delay action on climate change. And because News Corp and News UK are such huge institutions, they exert this kind of gravitational weight within the media ecology where they go, with where they go, others follow. So I think that we need to see this as playing a political and an economic role, where instead of media helping us to understand the power structures which govern our politics, which dictate and shape our existence, the media exists in order to bolster, support, and protect those power structures. I want to ask you something else about those power structures and the coverage of the climate crisis. Sure, and crisis. I'm sorry for we, all the scat talk, by the way. The, the, don't worry, it's fine. I, I'm very out of date. So we heard in that clip, Richard Madeley, I think, or some, they're all, they all look the same and sound the same, journalists contrasting ordinary people with climate activists. And it's, it's a contrast that is very common to the denigration of radical politics. Ordinary people who just want to get to work versus weird radicals who care 50 years ago about civil rights in the United States or 100 years ago about votes for women or today about the planet. So climate change has, has, has entered into that kind of register of, uh, of, of the causes of the weirdos. Is that the fault of the climate movement? So 
We've got a comment, for example, on YouTube from Nicola Curtin, who says, we must have more of what Extinction Rebellion are doing. Let's stop worrying about inconveniencing the bosses, which is what they mean when they talk about inconveniencing people. But some very radical climate activists and writers like Andreas Malm have been quite critical of some of the Extinction Rebellion uh, actions and have said they wrongly target ordinary people uh, when they should be uh, instead focused on, on targeting big uh, corporations and, um, and states. I don't know how possible that is because, of course, we're all involved in, uh, in, in the manufacturing of the climate crisis, even though very unevenly so. Big companies are responsible for 70% of global emissions, but we're their customers. So do you think it's possible to have a different kind of class politics of climate change? Do you think that climate activists need to change the way they're doing this? Or do you think that the uh, counterposition between activists and ordinary people is just a kind of right-wing device that we're never going to be able to get beyond? Have Extinction Rebellion done some silly things and things which I think are really stupid? Yes, absolutely. Do you have some kind of, you know, chickpea eating yogi weirdos who really love turning up to climate stuff? Yes, absolutely you do. But you have weirdos in literally every part of organized politics. And I'm talking not just about the left, I'm talking about the Liberal Democrats, the Independent Group for Change. They were fucking weird. Young Tories, have you seen them, man? All right. Politics is ultimately a contact sport for people who didn't get invited to loads of parties at sixth form. And that's fine. I was one of those people. All right. Everyone's a weirdo. So this idea that, I think that you can strategize, I'm kind of going through some stuff right now and it's bringing up some memories of um, not having a date for my sixth form prom. But I don't think you can necessarily come or strategize your way out of that because it will always be an attack line which is used more against the left. And that's because there's this very long history that you talk about of the loony left who are out of touch with ordinary people. And that was done on the basis of support for gay rights in the 1980s and the 1990s, going back further on matters of racial equality, votes for women, you know, child labor, and so on and so forth. It goes way, way back. I think the thing which you have to understand, which makes this historical moment different in some ways is that I think the entirety of political difference has become understanding politics as identity politics. Now, this happens just to be something I'm writing about in my book at the moment. But what I mean by identity politics is not just stuff like, oh, Black Lives Matter or, you know, gender or trans rights. Identity politics is when you boil down every issue of political contestation into one about who am I, who are you, who is truly a legitimate part of the body politic and the demos. And that is exactly the game that's being played on Good Morning Britain. You hear it from Larry Turner. You hear it from Richard Maidley. You are weirdos. That's who you are. You've got ego. You're trying to make me feel bad. You're a 20-year-old who doesn't know anything. You've got a savior complex, whereas me, I'm just an ordinary struggling mum who's on TV every single morning spouting some absolute shite. It is taking climate change, which is really, at its heart, an economic issue. It is about the distribution of resources, the extraction of resources, the exploitation of land and labor, but it's boiling it down into who am I, who are you? And I think that there is an element to which the left and the climate movement have to think about how you neutralize some of that stuff. And I actually think that some of the interviews in The Observer did it very well when they're talking about things like disruption. Look, if my house was on fire and you woke me up, it wouldn't be mad that you woke me up. You know, you do have to do an element of comms. But the fact is, is that you are also always going to be demonized because what you're doing is a threat 
to the powerful and the wealthy. And one last question. You said climate change is an economic issue. It's also an issue of imperialism. One of the striking features of the Paris COP conference was the starring role of the then president of the Maldives. In the COP Glasgow conference, we had the starring role of the prime minister of Barbados, pointing out that climate change is, like so much else, a problem cooked up in Western capitals for which the global South is already paying a particularly vicious kind of price. So it's quite disturbing that the image of climate action is global North middle-class activists, this is at least the kind of rhetorical image, the media image, um, detached from ordinary people's concerns. It seems to me there's a possibility of reviving a kind of anti-colonial internationalism around climate, around saying our lives are more important than your profits, an old slogan uh, from, from the French radical left that Emmanuel Macron is now weirdly trying to revive. But if you take that seriously, it's to say corporate profits in the global North shouldn't be made at the expense of flooding and devastation in the global South. So is there a possibility here in moving beyond an identitarian politics, a politics that is just about the defense of existing identities, to a politics of survival, of, uh, of dignity, which, which has an anti-colonial and a class content? Is, is, is climate an open possibility as well as a kind of uh, a danger? Well, I think you've got to go back to my original image of the contaminated swimming pool. When you've been swimming around in shit for so long, the idea of dignity becomes threatening. And I think that's actually where a lot of people in this country are. The idea that you could stop being so angry, you know, everyone who's watching Good Morning Britain, they're inflamed and red like an ingrown hair, you know, it just makes you furious all the time. And the idea that you might do something which is rooted in the shared human dignity that we all have. The idea that because I happen to be born in the global north, I don't have more of a right to life or a stable existence or, you know, lower rates of infant mortality than if I'd been born in Bangladesh. The idea that actually there is such thing as a rising tide which lifts all boats, that you don't have to be governed by the values of negative solidarity, which is I don't want good things if I think somebody undeserving might get some of it. That idea becomes very, very threatening. And again, it is something which is produced. I don't think it's like a natural feature of human psychology. I think it is a mood which has been very much deliberately engendered by the media industrial complex. And it is one which is fed every single day. I couldn't agree more. And I want to thank Ash. Thank you so much for joining me tonight on my debut here in the fancy studio. You know what? I think you absolutely smashed it. And maybe there's no reason to let Michael Walker out of his cage. You could be in the hot seat for years to come. He will be drugged and poisoned for the coming weeks. Thanks, all of you, for joining us tonight. I've been Barnaby Rain, covering for Michael Walker. He'll be back soon, really, I promise. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.